0: Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a 100 different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Were prohibited by and T-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas. Visit Cox.com Internet for details.
1: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell and West. That's Chamberlain. He's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It was all over. The off. have won. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Dunkin' Dynasty, alongside my co-host, Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay, and this week we're bringing you a very special episode. We're going to be diving into another classic series, and given that The, uh, the Last Dance uh, just aired recently, just finished up, uh, we are going to be uh, breaking down the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals between the Indiana Pacers and the Chicago Bulls. Now, I personally watched games two, three, four, and seven of this series. Corbin, uh, what uh, what parts of the series did you watch? Um, one through five, and then seven as well. Okay, so you watched a little bit more than me. I did catch the. Uh, I did catch also the uh the the conclusion of game six which was a, a real tight contest with the with the Pacers season on the line so uh we we both have uh have dived in pretty deep into this series this should be a fun a fun discussion so I guess uh, Corbin since uh since I didn't actually watch game one what were some of your takeaways from the the opening game of this series so it was interesting um
2: for the first, it felt like the first half, the Pacers had control. It was a tight knit. Um, it was definitely more of a uh, defensive battle. The offense was definitely struggling for both sides. Up through the first quarter, at one point, um, it was the Pacers were up 40 to 31, up through a minute 40, and they'd actually held Jordan in check. He only had, um, he was only one of nine from the field for up through that first, uh, half there, which was great for Indiana. And basically, you had, um, the way it started, Phil Jackson did not start Dennis Rodman. Um, he wanted to come off to
1: kind of battle with more of the Davis. brothers. You obviously had Dale Davis, and then Antonio uh, Antonio Davis, which ended and, up being uh, which ended up being you know the the starting coup coach. Instead, ended up being a running trend in the series. Yes, exactly. It faced the floor a little bit more. Um, definitely,
2: uh, definitely used more. I, I like the additional ball handling that wasn't optimized as much with Scotty Pippen on ball, but you had another guy in tuning Tony Kugel who offensively brought more strengths and also pulled some of the Davis out and then you had Dennis Robin to come be that super sub big man who was gonna play heavy minutes regardless. So that was an interesting uh, tactical change. But from that yet yeah, for the first half I felt the Pacers were solid. They controlled it pretty well. And then the second half came and all of a sudden, um I mean, Chicago had already started using Pippen on Mark Jackson. So he was already giving Mark Jackson fits through most of the game. In fact, um, Jackson finished with more turnovers than assists. He had seven turnovers, only totally six assists. And the way that they worked out the defensive rotations, um, Ron Harper was able to cover Reggie Miller. And then Jordan was able to stick Chris Mullen, who at this point wasn't um, the run TMC Chris Mullen. But right. 34 Definitely fading just a bit. Um, and he only went
1: one of four. Uh, in
2: game one if I remember So it was pretty It was not an easy matchup for Jordan But definitely a lot easier than chasing Reggie Miller through screens And um, having Pippen just swallow up Mark Jackson was rough But Then in the second half It was like the Bulls just took over They were all over the passing lanes I think At the end of the game I don't. I had a number for how many they had at the end of the third quarter But for the game the Pacers committed a season high 26 turnovers And Jordan scored 25 points in the second half Um And the Pacers, they scrapped. They fought to their credit. They crawled back in, I think, with like eight minutes left. Um, Dale Davis put back a basket to basically get the Pacers back within one point. And then Jordan just went right back to work. And the Bulls pulled away 85-79, which is funny to say pull away when they won by six. But you could definitely see the control was gone because the defense for Chicago just totally throttled Indiana down the stretch. And, you know, aside from Reggie Miller, who was a great offensive boon, there was struggles just generating good offense, and especially when Mark Jackson went to the bench, and that was crazy because he was already ineffective as he was just with Pippen on him. But it was like you had no semblance of um, a capable
1: ball handler outside of I guess Travis Best. Right. Yeah. Uh, the The pressure on Jackson from Pippen full court a lot of the times was was a key factor in the series. And as you mentioned, you know, with with Reggie Miller not being much of a ball handler, with Chris Mullen again at uh, you know, you you mentioned the fact that he was 34 at the point of this series. He had lost a ton of athleticism. He didn't really have much of an off-the-bounce game. And then, you know, with the the bigs that they play and the likes of Antonio Davis, Dale Davis, and Rick Schmitz, it's not as if any of those guys can be sort of a point forward. So they really did rely on whatever point guard was out there on the floor in Jackson or Best, and, and they rarely played together. Exactly,
2: yeah. And that was interesting as well as they're Rotations on that because you said already the, the you had the big like ground bound folks in the Davis brother in the Davis brothers in the Davis uh, uh, duo in Smiths that you weren't getting a lot of ball handling there. Jalen Rose could do a little bit of that, but for the most part you're right. It was Mark Jackson was it was best. Those were the two guards that were kind of shoehorned out into that role, and I think you had a you know best was just a different type of player. I don't want to say it was a a market decline from. Jackson to best, but just getting them in their offense. I feel like best had a tendency to pound the ball a little bit more, um, and the offense kind of stagnated. And a lot of that I think was also just based off of who he was on the floor with. So I completely agree that maybe it wasn't all to best's um, detriment that the way he played, but it was it, the offense was notably kind of bogged down, which was tough because Chicago also ratchet up their defense several, you know, notches. So. It it just I I was watching this and I'm like wow this is painful trying to see um
1: Indiana generate any kind of offense to stay with them. Yeah, it's funny you know looking at Mark Jackson and Travis Best. It was it's almost as if if you could just combine those two people into one player, they would have been fantastic because you know the the Bulls were able to pressure Jackson because he doesn't have that elite quickness that Best has. So you know when Best came on the floor, the Bulls just didn't pressure him at all really. Um, but then, uh, you know, with, with best, as you mentioned, not as good of a passer as Jackson. So not as efficient at, you know, getting the, getting the Pacers into their, into their offensive sets. And also, you know, Mark Jackson has that post game, whereas best is more that drive game. Yeah. They, they brought completely different skill sets to the table and it's why at certain times, I think the the Pacers looked really good with Jackson. They also sometimes looked really bad with Jackson and, and the same with best, but, uh, before we get into uh, you know Game Two and onward, some of the games that we both watched, wanted to just give a little background on these teams. The Pacers coming into this series the, in the regular season, they won 58 games. They were fourth in offensive rating and fifth in defensive rating. They uh, they had a, a point differential for a 59 win expectation. Uh, the Bulls. A 62 wins, 61 expected. Ninth in the NBA in offensive rating and third in defensive rating. So you know you look at these two teams and people would say, "Oh, the Bulls are the two-time defending champs. The Pacers have, you know, they've made some conference finals throughout the 90s." But this is, uh, you know, still a relatively unproven team with a first-year head coach in Larry Bird. But you know when you watch these games, this was about as even of a matchup as as it gets. Oh, yeah. I, I loved the makeup
2: of this Pacers team in general. You had a veteran squad, even their rookies, um, Austin Crochet and, um, I'm forgetting, uh, Mark
1: Pope, I think it was? Uh, yes, Pope yeah. was kind yeah, of Mark... like the fourth big. The fourth big, exactly. But even those,
2: they were rookies, but they were even older as rookies. And you just had a veteran-laden team that was, at this point, you know, they, they weren't playing around. And they had some, I don't want to say championship mentality, but they had been playoff. Um, hardened um, at this point Reggie Miller was 32 Mark Jackson 32 Rick Smith was 31 and Derek McKee as well and then you had just uh, trade acquisition Chris Mullen was 34 and you had Mark West 37 and then the Davis uh, duo Antonio Davis 29 David, Dale Davis 28 and best in um at 25 each. they both were you know had a couple of years in the league so this team you know was was a team that was ready I mean one of the younger guys uh, another guy Jalen Rose, um, he had a rough two years in Denver and a rough first year, um, you know, dealing with uh, Larry Brown um, the season before on the Pacers, but he was excited, and he had the potential, he was a player that was drafted 13th overall, so you had a team that, they had, they were weathered, they were ready for this, and I think physicality-wise, um, defensively, they had enough offensive power I thought, um, going in at least that, while I was watching this, I was like, wow, you know, I remember this being tight, obviously seven games, but this seemed to be a team that could really take the bulls the distance.
1: Yeah, and they, you know, they they had a solid combination of, you know, they they were good in transition. You know, with Mark Jackson, he he would push the ball consistently, and you know, obviously one of the best passers in the history of the game, at least in terms of assist totals. Uh, And then, uh, you know, you've got Miller and Mullen on the wings. You know, they're both deadly catch and shoot players. You know, obviously, Reggie Miller is considered this great shooter, and and most people know uh, Mullen from from the Dream Team. He was a sharp shooter as well. And and despite what we mentioned earlier, that he he lost some athleticism at his advanced age, he still could shoot the heck out of the ball. I got a kick out of the fact that Reggie Miller, despite being a career 90% free throw shooter, was not the technical free-throw shooter for the Pacers' (laughs) Steve. No, I thought that was funny, too.
2: That's true. And I remember noticing going, wow, I I just assumed that Reggie was the guy for shooting. But no, he wasn't. And that's that's another thing
1: you mentioned. Mullen was a a knockdown shooter in his own right. Second in the the NBA in three-point percentage that season and 94% from the line. There you go. So you had, and it was
2: such a, a good, I think, getting, I think he basically was, uh, a swap for Eric Dampier. Um, that's who there's any more artillery pieces there that the Pacers did. But such a good trade for them, someone who fit the timeline and brought even more offensive firepower there because Derek McKee um, at the small four position was more uh, defensive-minded. And Jalen Rose could shoot, but he was nowhere near the level of a Chris Mullen. And so you had another guy who kind of faced the floor, you know, for Spitz to go to work in the post and then the Davis brothers, or Dave, I keep saying Davis brothers, but the Davis duo to kind of do their work as well. So, and it gave the floor some cushiony spacing because between Smiths um, and either the Davis guys, you weren't really going out farther than like fifteen to seventeen
1: feet. Yeah, I think you can call them the Davis brothers. We'll just mention right now they're not biological brothers, yeah, but uh, yeah. they're they're teammates that both have the last name of Davis, so it's easy just to say Davis Bros. But uh, <laughs> yeah, which is why I think that's probably why Indiana uh, traded Antonio in, in the ninety nine two thousand season uh, when he probably got up in the finals because you know like hey listen. We, we got to get rid of one of the Davises here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it makes the job as a broadcaster pretty difficult for sure when you've uh, we've well, got two guys with the same last name. But uh, but yeah, the the other thing that's interesting about Indiana in the half court is you know you talk about uh, obviously the likes of Miller and Mullen being able to run off ball screening actions, trying to f- free themselves up to get threes. Uh, but then you know this Pacers team just had a myriad of of post up options with the likes of Rick Smiths, who's seven three and has a really good touch. Uh, both Davis brothers at at various stages, you know, uh, had moments in this series where they were were effective and and tough to stop on the block. And then you know you've got guy even Derek McKee off the bench at like six nine could post up and score. And yeah, Mark Jackson. Uh, was, uh, you know, that might have been, aside from his passing, his best strength on offense is that post-up play, but the challenge with, uh, you know, with the the matchup, specifically with Mark Jackson against this Bulls team is, because the Bulls start Derek Harper at point guard, they've got, you know, you've got Harper, Jordan, Pippen, I mean, there was nobody that Jackson could attack on the block in that Bulls starting lineup. No,
2: there really wasn't. You had length you had that physicality you had the defensive presence where you know either way you weren't taking advantage of that I'm sure you know the, the pace to kind of breeze to the first round there was other matchups that Mark Jackson was able to impose you know his, his will there but on this no and it was so hard to see him try to get down there and he had his moments or he had some moments but you know, you weren't getting anywhere with Pippen. He wasn't being able to be moved, and that length was so much more devastating to watch as he just cramped the passing lanes, played off masterfully. It, it, he literally swallowed up Jackson, who was an experienced guard. You know, at this time, was great as like you said, as far as getting the pace in their offense and racking up assists. And uh, he had a uh, thing upon Eastern Conference guards, the best assist turnover ratio. And by the middle of the series, he was like basically dead even on one to
1: one ratio. when that was. Just because of the defense, swarming them up, and Pippen in particular. Yeah, and you know when the the Pacers' offense, a lot of times, was for the first, you know, ten seconds of the shot clock, it would be Reggie Miller running around trying to get an open shot, and and Jackson mm-hmm. would do a pretty good job of maintaining his dribble so that he could wait out and f- try to find Miller. And if that didn't work against, you know, probably twenty eight of the thirty teams in the NBA. Then when it gets down to 10 on the shot clock and nothing has materialized with Miller, he can just back down and, and create something. But against this Bulls team, that didn't really happen. Although I will say the another interesting subplot of this matchup is that for the first few games of this series, Steve Kerr really didn't play much because it was a difficult matchup for him, you know, with the likes of Jackson or Best because Jackson... Uh, whenever Jackson got the opportunity to have Kerr guarding him, that's when you did see him have some success on the block. Uh, but then, you know, when Best was out there, Kerr just didn't have the foot speed. Yeah, and that, so that's, I think in both matchups it was a bad one for
2: Kerr because on the offensive end, sure, great value is an additional floor spacer and a knockdown three-point shooter, but you already just mentioned it. Um, he was too slow on one end for one guard, um, and then he was too, like, slight uh, of just frame. Um, on the same end for another guard. And so <laughs> you're right, for the measure of success that the Pace were able to have at that point guard position, um, and really just getting um, points from that spot, it was really kind of feasting on Kerr and I was later because like you said, between best speed and, and um Jackson's, you know, presence in the post, they were able to get things done. But before that, it was hard. And I mean they were getting legit swallowed up. Um the Bulls back who was running wild with points. Obviously a lot of that um, just the to Jordan and the Pacers outside of Reggie Miller weren't really getting a lot done from their backup, um, not from the back, from their backcourt spot. You'd have an occasional, you know, Mark Jackson finish a couple of threes, you know, something like that from him. But, but really, it was coming down to Reggie Miller to kind of provide scoring at least through the first couple of games from the backcourt positions. And you're right, it was just, it was the worst possible matchup, and it really just showcased the Bulls' defensive versatility that they didn't have to play tradition okay my point guard will stick your point guard um on that end they were able to move different lineups in order to get the most out of them ron harper could chase reggie miller around screens was a decent defender even then jordan was getting a break and able to feast on transitions he was still having to chase more around but it was just different in terms of where they both were and pippen again and it, i mean and then you have dennis Rodman coming off the bench um
1: just to exploit a certain matchup that's just a luxury of riches there yeah, and, you know, the, the Pacers, with, with Jackson's postgame largely stifled, you know, Reggie Miller uh, at one point gets hurt in this series, and and, and that uh, that slows him down quite a bit. But, yeah, the Bulls had plenty of guys to throw at Miller. Uh, so the Pacers had to go to sometimes their third or fourth option on offense, and, and that often would be Rick Smiths on the block or even – um, you know, we, we mentioned that, the, that Phil Jackson started Coach over Rodman for a lot of this series, and, and sometimes the Pacers would get success out of just posting up whoever coach was guarding. But then, you know, on the other end, when, when you talk about trying to beat the Chicago Bulls, one of the keys, obviously, is when you're dealing with a superstar like Michael Jordan, is either slowing him down or slowing everybody else down. And with Mullen being, you know, pretty slow-footed at this point in his career and and Reggie Miller being kind of slight, it seemed like, yeah, the Pacers didn't have anybody that uh, that could really challenge MJ. Yeah,
2: no, they really didn't. And, you, I mean, he was just stopping mean, I don't know if we're going to game two um, just yet
1: um, while we're talking. Yeah, let's go just, into yeah. it, yeah.
2: Oh, okay, cool. Well, I mean, it, it felt, I guess, I mean, you watched as well, but the script was... Awfully similar to game one, it felt like, you know. The Pacers had a nice lead in the first half. Second half, Bulls' defense ratcheted up. Pacers just turned the ball over like it was on fire. And Michael Jordan just took over again. I mean, it's just in terms of, like, the simple game plan that it was. Um, Because, uh, for the record, Bulls won 104-98. But not only were the Pacers, you know, out of rhythm, the same things we were just talking about as far as their backcourt scoring in general, but also now they're getting upset with the way that Pippen... Um, and his defense Was on Jackson Not only was it Taking him out But on the Pacers side I know um, Both Larry Bird And Mark Jackson Played after the game That it was a little much And Larry Bird It, it went on And said basically He'd like to see Scottie Pippen Guard Michael Jordan All the way up the court The same way that he guards Mike, Mark Jackson And see how long He stays in the game And I wanted to Get what you thought About that Gary Because I thought that You know Pippen definitely Did get away with Some holds And some grabs here, But I thought It was kind of
1: Yeah, I think the, for the most part, I agree with you that the game was just a little bit more physical. You know, both teams were allowed to be physical. And I think it was, it's interesting too, you know, you watch a a game in 2020 and the slightest bump and the offensive player will, you know, go flailing and, um, you know, accentuate that contact to try to draw the foul. But despite the physicality in this series, you know, you didn't really see much of that. You didn't see players going for trying to draw a foul by, you know, falling down or by, you know, seemingly being pushed off balance. Uh, so that was, that was refreshing to see players just play it naturally. But, yeah, for the most part, I think, you know, Pippen and Jordan, one of the, one of the first notes I had watching that game, too, is just how suffocating these two guys still are as perimeter defenders being able to anticipate where a guy is going to drive and, and cut him off after just a single dribble. Uh, and, and yeah, a, a lot of times, a lot of the bumps that are happening is Jackson trying to go a certain direction and Pippen anticipating it and getting there first, and then the contact happens. Um, there, there were a few uh, in, in Jackson's defense where, yeah, Pippen is, you know, as Jackson is backing him down, Pippen is maybe grabbing his off arm and, and pulling him, you know, dragging him, and and there were a few of those that didn't get called. But but I agree with you. For the most part, I thought it was uh, was clean, good defensive basketball, at least for for that uh, for that era of the NBA. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how
2: it was looking. And to be honest, you know, whether or not the refs even were as big a factor, I'm glad we both were in some agreements on, on, on just how much they were. It really was just turnovers in Jordan again. Jordan had forty one points. Pacers kept turning the ball over. Um, the game was still close. Um, in the third quarter, the score at one point was tied at 64, and then Jordan scored 12 of the Bulls' final 14 points of that quarter, and the Pacers wouldn't lead again. That was pretty much a wrap. Um, and, you know, through those first two games by himself, again, we talked about the Pacers' inability to just match up with Michael, but Jordan outscored Indiana's top two scorers, um, both Reggie Miller and Rick
1: Smith, 72-61. to yeah, uh, Jordan was absolutely sensational. I wanted to, wanted to talk to you about his uh, his game a little bit. You know, I, I have watched a decent amount of Jordan throughout the years, but honestly, I've watched a lot more of younger MJ, you know, MJ on that first three-peat as opposed to the later years. And what really impressed me about this version of Jordan is despite the fact that he's not quite as athletic as he used to be, he doesn't hang in the air quite as well uh, as as he did in his younger days. He's still able to get to the free throw line just through sheer patience and and strength on the block. You see a lot of times where he's uh, you know backing guys down from about five to ten feet. He'll he can spin baseline, get to the hoop do pump fakes, and he had just a, a, a great amount of patience to, to draw fouls and still get right to the rim despite the fact that it's through post-ups as opposed to uh, typically you know, driving from outside the three-point line. Yeah, I, it was it was such a, I don't
2: even want to say a, a clinic just to watch him. And I've, I've actually been on the other end. I've watched a little more older MJ, I think, of the three-peat than the younger. Okay. Division. And so that was kind of cool to have that, that uh, difference here. But just to see, like you said, the patience in the, in the post, just the way he played his own pace, the way that, you know, he would get down to his fadeaway, get to his moves, and he was always just a beat ahead of the defensive person, and depending on the defender, often two or three. And it just seemed like it was going so easy. Like, sometimes when he was off, you know, it was just, it was just off of his own, like a shot missed, but it was like he was getting out of any rhythm or anything. It was just coming so easy. And then when you had the addition of playing the passing lanes and getting in transition, it was great. But he had one move in the first um, game that I just loved in transition, early offense basically got the ball on the right block and then did a uh, post fadeaway.
1: Yeah, and when he, when he would go away from the post-up game, he's often facing up starting at about 15 feet. So, you know, lacking a little bit of that speed, a little bit of that hang time, the fact that he's starting his drives a little closer to the hoop, I think, sort of offsets some of that stuff. Another thing that I was really impressed with, and part of this I imagine is just his familiarity with the triangle and where players are going to be, but over and over again in this series, he broke the Cardinal rule of basketball, which is jumping up in the air, not knowing exactly what he was going to do, where it looked like he was going to go up for a jump shot, but then changes his mind at the last second. But, you know, again, uh, another reason why he's... uh, in, in my mind, the greatest player of all time. He somehow made that work and always found the open teammate. And it, it really was an effective strategy because the defense sunk in towards him when it looked like he was about to shoot, and then he found a found an open teammate. And no, I, I agree. I saw it more than a couple of times. Each time he did, I'm like, "Oh, that's a term." And it just it just wouldn't happen. Like, <laughs> you're
2: right. Like you don't do that. And and with most other players. That's gonna be a turnover or a miscommunication. Sometimes it was more of a miscommunication, but it was it was always getting right where it needed to go. And the fact, like you said, the domino effect of him going up and the defense sucking in and focusing on Jordan was able to open up so many different angles. He just knew the game like like a chess master. That even the gambles weren't necessarily gambles because of how they worked out. You know what I mean? And I, that's, I'm glad you picked that out because you know, one day I saw it too and I was like, oh that's, a, oh that's bad. Oh guess not. Oh that's oh guess not.
1: Like it happened. <laughs>
2: I don't know if he shouldn't have done that and then it works and I go oh okay never mind so yeah it's just again I think watching this I don't it obviously wasn't Jordan I added.
1: Absolutely, and yeah, you know, we, we've we marveled at how good like a 35-year-old LeBron is uh, this this past season, and, and watching MJ in this series, it's, yeah, it's just, it's shocking to think like, oh, this guy was 34 during this series, and he's doing this crazy stuff. Um, you know, he, uh, in the third quarter of this game, too, Jordan was just living at the free-throw line, uh, got 10 free-throw attempts in the quarter, finished with 14 points in the period, and uh, as you mentioned, you know with the Pacers having the lead at the half of both games one and two, uh, Jordan and, and the Bulls defense, I think set the tone in those third quarters and really changed the, the games and, and got the Bulls to a, to a two nothing lead. But, but you know, uh, another couple of things in the in the fourth quarter that was big is, is Ku Coach stepped up and, and had a really huge fourth quarter of that game to, um, you know, with with Pippen not doing much offensively, with the fact that they can't have Kerr out there too much at, at this stage of the series because of the matchups, they needed that offensive punch from coach, and he provided it. Oh,
2: yeah, that was a masterful move. From, and I don't necessarily look at Jackson as a – I mean, he made great moves. He was a great coach. Obviously, do not win 11 rings uh, with, for nothing. But, but the way that he was such, I guess, a, a, a tactician, just in terms of matchups, knowing – how, you know, how good of a piece Coach was with an offensive versatility. Another ball, another shooter, space the floor and get some more offense out of that position and also the effect was going to have on the Pacers. That was an understated move. Well, not really, we're talking about it now, but in terms of just knowing your personnel and say, okay, listen, I can not only reach Rodman from a person level to kind of get him to understand what I'm trying to do here, but also deploy the right matchups for opportunity because it was talked about in the broadcast. Well, they're starting, you know, Kukoc and bringing Robin off the bench, and you know, why you could kind of get for the reason why it applied to Raman so well because you know, his strength and, and activity was better needed for you know, the arguably the Pacers' strength as far as the big man position coming off the bench. But having Kukoc just the offensive firstly he provided was such a good move for Jackson, but I think I just understated how good Kukoc was. Um, just knowing the Bulls, just the history of the dynasties, of course, he was an integral piece for that 3 just having another offensive weapon, somebody who was an offensive initiator, um, in an in embarrassment of riches on top of Jordan and Pippen. But just watching him again for this series, acknowledge he was really, really good. And, again, played in his own kind of style, but slot in perfectly, could rack up points, could initiate the offense several times when you had um, both Coach and Pippen on the floor, people would bring the ball up. And sometimes Kukoc would say, like, I, a few times that I remember Pippen going to get the ball and Cougar just grabbing it and bringing it up court. And just the offense, Pippen just going off the other way. Like, you had another person who knew the triangle, who could create his own shot, who could stretch the floor, who could facilitate, um, and was just a skilled all-around player, especially on the offensive end. And
1: I think that was one of the bigger takeaways for me from the series is, yeah, like, Kukos was good, but, like, no, Cougars was good. <laughs> Yeah, he, he played a great series throughout. And yeah, he had that, at his size, he had that ability, you know, just to give you a little jab step and, and pull up right and hit it right in your eye. Uh, he, was, uh, he was filthy in this series. And, and uh, yeah, you, you mentioned Jackson's decision to start him. And I think it was a pretty good one given that Dale Davis was, was more of a traditional big man. I think in today's da- game, uh, Dale Davis probably is a small ball center. Um, and so he wasn't as comfortable getting out to Ku Coach. And, and we'll get into that in game seven. I have a few notes on that from, from that game once we get there. But uh, I wanted to talk about the last three minutes of, of game two where Jordan just completely took over the ball game. And the Pacers, you know, fought back. They were, they were down, I believe, nine points with seven minutes left. but uh, you know, Mullen made a few plays. Um, you know Smith scored a couple of buckets and and uh the the Pacers got back within within five points but then Jordan hits that patented uh, turnaround that you talked about earlier to put Chicago up seven with 230 left uh, Chris Mullen responds with a jumper off a pin down and and brought the game back to five uh, but then uh, with 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 uh with two minutes left mark Jackson just Rips the ball away, I believe it was from Harper, and finds Reggie Miller, who steps on the line and hits a hits a long two to cut the game to three. And uh, unfortunate for Indiana because yeah, his uh, his big toe I think was just barely on the line there. Um, but then MJ, you know, with a in a three point game, two minutes to go, a crucial moment in this series where the Pacers could potentially uh, they're in position to steal one on the road. Jordan. Uh, you know, kind of slips, dribbling the ball to his right, falls down, but maintains the dribble, gets back up and hits a hits a mid-range jumper where the ball bounces on the rim and falls. And then the following possession, he gets sw- uh, Antonio Davis switches on to him, Bulls up five with under a minute to go, and he uh, drives right, stops on a dime and hits about a 17-foot fall away, puts the Bulls up seven. Uh, to, to and to give him his 41 points on the night but uh, you know i i've noticed this throughout jordan's career is not it's not only the massive point totals but the timeliness and how clutch he consistently was in these big moments uh, anytime the pacers got close jordan had an answer yeah you, you put it so succinctly but that's exactly what happened
2: every time and it was even more devastating because you're right he was getting these, these crazy point totals, but also it was when you know, the final two minutes of this, the final three minutes of this, just whenever he did it, um, it, it, it sucked the life out of the Pacers just entirely with just how good he was, and you're right, that I, when you describe the way he slipped in and got his footing back, did like a, a nice little, kind of not a shuffle step, but a step into the free throw line and made a jumper, then he did another one, you're right, with low, a minute left in the corner, it was just... You couldn't stop the dude. You could not stop the dude. He was getting to his spots when he wanted to. He was rocking up his points. And it was when it was coming, you know, at the point, it's a, six, a seven, eight-point game. Okay, now we need to try to put a stop to him. You know, when he made that shot, he slipped. They were within three with a minute 40 left. You know, like, okay, bam, it happened again. Then, you know, a couple seconds after that, he goes over in the corner, loses defender. Boom. You just said it. It's the sense of time that made it so much worse. And, and again... It wasn't like the Pacers had a chance to really stop him throughout. He had 41. But it was also, like you said, just, I don't know. I would have been doubly just disappointed just because, like, okay, wow, just when we think we have a chance to kind of crawl back into this one. We have a fighting chance throughout all of this, throughout
1: not really getting to our offense, throughout not being able to stop Jordan. We have a chance. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, here it is. <laughs> yep, and the Pacers, again, despite being down 2 to nothing in the series, showed that they belonged on the floor with this Bulls team. You mentioned it. They were up at half in both games. And, you know, despite the fact that the Bulls took over at various stages of the second half, the Pacers didn't give up in either game. They just were basically defeated by uh, the greatest ever in Jordan. And, and, yeah, it was it was very impressive. So, as you stated, a 104-98 final in Game 2. So Chicago wins both at home, and they head to Indiana or Indianapolis for for Game 3. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was really funny starting this Game 3 is, you know, you talk about Jordan putting in the dagger at the end of Game 2. I think he made it a point to, to start Game 3 and, and say, you know what, you guys, uh, I, I'm going to send a message. He had a steal and a mid-range jumper on the first two possessions of Game 3. Oh, yeah. He, he was starting from the jump
2: on that one. Just right, like aggressive. I, and Bob, I think it was Bob Casas where he's like, Jordan, with the ball, 2 nothing Chicago. Like, the way he said it was just doubly like, yeah, Jordan was coming out. You could tell he was making a statement. Like, and there's certain players you just know while you're really trying to send a message here. But just right out the gate, with a quick start, too, especially since the other two games he didn't necessarily have um, a quick start. It kind of took off more in the second half and kept it going. But you can see he was trying to stop that from the jump, especially on the Pacers' home court, where, not only was it a weapon, I think home court for every team in this one was a weapon for both sides, but even more so for Indiana. Um, even going to the intro, they said, oh, you know, the paces are down 2-0, but this time it's different. This time they're in Indiana. So it's like, you know, Drove was obviously trying to go from the jump and say, okay, listen, boom. Like, they weren't exactly talking about the word sleep at this point, but I'm sure people were thinking it, um, because it was 11th time that the Bulls had taken a 2-0 lead in the best of seven, and they hadn't been up to that point pushed past the sixth game before winning, so it, 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 was, it was starting a little like, okay, the Pacers really need to get this one, and for Jordan to come out
1: like it's okay. We're, we're going to start bringing out the dagger now. Yeah, it, uh, things weren't looking great for Indiana, but fortunately, despite, you know, uh, I don't know how you felt about Reggie Miller's performances in games one and two. I thought he was okay, but, uh, you know, certainly didn't provide quite enough, especially in that game one offensively for, for Indiana. But uh, in this game three, he got hot early. He hit a three. He also hit a a, a 15-foot leaner and then also hit a, a, a 20-footer after a pump fake on a three. So he he really uh, was, you know, obviously understanding the moment, understanding that if you get down 3-0 to, to MJ and the Bulls, it's all but over. So this was a, a must-win game. And uh, at least in that first quarter of game three, Miller came to play. Oh, yeah.
2: From the jump I think he hit You're right, right? Jordan was doing his work I think Pippen got off With a three Like you said He was taking some jump shots I remember that going-
1: So speaking to you mentioned, yeah, he gets hurt a little bit later. I believe it's in the second quarter of this, uh, uh, sec or maybe third. No, it might've been the third quarter of game three. Um, but, uh, you saw him step on Jordan's foot because when the, the replay that I got, uh, when, when they mentioned that Miller when Miller initially started to hobble, it didn't even really look like a sprained ankle to me. It looked like he was, you know, kind of playing defense, and then he he stopped, and his his uh, right foot kind of slid almost behind him, and he tried to push off to, to you know to get his balance again. It almost looked more like that would be how you would maybe strain an Achilles or something. But uh, oh, wow. um, but but I didn't actually see any sort of actual ankle twist. Did you? I mean, when I looked at the replay,
2: I thought that he had basically off of Jordan. Yeah, like he. I'm looking at it right now just to make sure I had it right. But it felt like he almost got caught up underneath from what I was at. Um, once I keep going back to this one spot where he was hobbling on the defensive end. I feel like it happened before that because he wasn't playing the way he was running on it. It felt like he had landed underneath it. were running through the pitch of the screens, he had kind of caught up in it because he was already kind of hobbling from the time he went back on the net.
1: Well, yeah. Did you did did you hear the um did you hear the interview that Reggie had after game three? I did not know. Okay, so Ahmad Rashad interviewed him after and asked him about his ankle, and Miller said that he heard a pop. Oh. And so I'm wondering, you know, if it's an ankle, what you know, I've never heard of an ankle twist or an ankle sprain where there would be a pop. So yeah, I, I I I honestly am confused. I'm honestly confused as to what exactly happened. Um, but you know, you you watch him throughout the rest of that series after uh, after the injury, and it it severely limited his uh, his movement and mobility. Yeah, no, it
2: it, it really made him look, especially. It, it seemed more on the defensive end, but you're right, hobbling around offensively. Going around. He didn't have he didn't have that same speed, um, and that was an issue. Just I mean it wasn't okay. So it was an issue, but it wasn't. It was an issue because obviously spraining your ankle or you pop it or you know you're not able to move for a guy who, you know, dep- is especially dependent on his speed and 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 being able to maneuver around screens around all of that, especially in a game that you're gonna have to do that to begin with was hard. That in and of itself was difficult. However, I mean he did go off. After he came back, he scored 13 in the final four minutes um, to finish 28. So he came back, and whether it was one of those, obviously it was an inspiring performance, but he was able to rally and kind of pull it together enough to kind of get off and still not only open up the pace offense, because Reggie kind of for, you know, he was the hub of their offense, but also to then continue to convert points, I feel was like it was a great job for him in spite of the injury. That's what I mean to
1: say. Like he was able to produce in spite of that, right? Um, yeah, we'll we'll get to the, the we'll get to the closing stages of Game Three in a bit, but uh, yeah, the uh, a couple of notes I had that I thought was interesting, and and I heard Zach Lowe talking about this on on his podcast, the Low Post. But you know, Phil Jackson and and this you know the 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 second three peat Bulls had that really nice vert- versatility of. Having Kerr and Harper at the point guard position, where you can kind of play offense defense. You put Kerr in for offense, Harper for defense. And same with Kukoc and Rodman. You had a more offensive, uh, you know, stretch four, and Kukoc the rebounding defender and Rodman. So depending on the situation, and and in, in close game situations, late game situations, if you've got a single possession, and then you're go- you know you're going to call a timeout he can go with the, the specific guy that's going to be on that end of the floor. That provided some, some nice versatility for this Bulls team. Another thing that I thought was, was fascinating, uh, and I'd like to hear your take on this as well, but, but Derek McKee off the bench, a, a solid veteran guy that had a, had a really long, productive NBA career, uh, he ended up, to me, being the best option for the Pacers to throw at Jordan on the, on the defensive end because of his size at about 6'9", 6'10", and he also was, was pretty strong, so Jordan couldn't just bully him like he was bullying a uh, Reggie Miller or Chris Mullen. Um, but then also the Pacers at, at times even, you know, realizing that we should be attacking Jordan on the other end and making him work, they threw the ball to McKee on the block, and, and McKee had some success against MJ. Oh, yeah, no, that was right.
2: another understated move. Well, I mean, I understand the move, but just deploying the, the to Moore. who was more defensively minded. But the dude averaged eleven points a game over his career. He definitely gets some points down. Um, he had some modest success out to three point range, um, unlimited attempts for his career. So he he was a he was I don't I don't, don't want to say like a total complete player in that sense, but he was definitely someone whose defensive strengths allowed him to match up with Jordan the best. And offensively was not a liability on that either. So you're right, especially going on there and being able to. Even just have a couple of baskets where you're able to go to somebody. There was a lot of times where the Pacers just felt without Miller on the bench or without Jackson that there was like, okay, what are we doing right now? You know, Jalen Rose could pop a couple of jump shots, sure. Travis Best could dribble around until he gets an avenue, great. But, like, where are we going to be able to go? And to have another person in McKee that could eat a possession or two for you in a positive way for the Pacers was big. And I think you're right. Having having him in there, um, not to hold Jordan in check, but to have someone who was best matched up against Jordan for the Pacers was great, but also, I think, um, again, for this third game, a lot of it we talked about this a little bit ago with game two. But just having, um, I think they called two quick fouls on, um, on uh, Scotty Pippen this game after the last complaint they had from the last one, yes, um, from game two. And I think that impacted them a lot too because now, you know, it, it, it takes your aggressiveness away, um, especially having Pippen at the point of attack on Jackson. Now Jackson's
1: a little more free to move around, and I think that helped a little bit on the other side. Absolutely, yeah, that's the, uh, that's why coaches uh, complain. You know, you put that info in the, in the referee's ear, and you know, if that's one of the four or five things that they're thinking about going into a game, yeah, they might be more likely to call a a 50-50 call your way. So, uh, yeah, I think it was a smart move from Larry Bird to, to bring that up, and, and, uh, (laughs) And to basically say, yeah, like, um, if Mark, you know, you, you guys treat MJ differently than you treat Mark Jackson. So, um, yeah, that was that was absolutely uh, correct. And, and, yeah, he got a couple quick fouls in that first quarter. Another thing that, you know, speaking of the challenges that Mark Jackson faced against the, the Bulls perimeter defense, I thought Reggie at times suffered, uh, you know, struggled against the likes of Harper, Pippen, and, and Jordan as well. You know, Reggie wasn't much of an isolation player, but in those moments where he did isolate, I I didn't think it looked very good. There was there was one play where he was being guarded by Michael Jordan. Reggie does a spin move, MJ completely reads it, gets his chest right in front of Miller, takes the hit and falls down. You know, it, it wasn't a flop either, it was a legitimate hit he took. And, uh, you know, Miller just kind of flings a shot up that doesn't go, but no foul on the play. It's one of those where you just like, I mean, that is a lot of contact to just say, play on. Yeah, exactly. Like, the refs looked at that and it
2: definitely was like, oh, bang, bang, play, as both bodies just flail around. <laughs> just a sign of, I guess, the difference of play back then. Because I do remember that play. And one, yeah, I think they go to isolation. I think for that very reason you described it, even when everyone saw. Exactly what it was gonna happen, how quickly that was
1: gonna be negated. So <laughs> I think he was best just kind of going around the screens like he was. Yeah, and uh, Jordan struggled offensively in the game three. I would say it m- might have been his worst offensive performance in the series. Although you know, even a bad offensive performance for for MJ is, is decent for, for most players. Uh, but sure. but he was just five of fourteen from the field at the half. But despite that. The Bulls were actually up 56-52, and uh, we started to uh, realize that, oh, there's a theme in this series, that the, the road team is up at the half, but then the home team comes out in the second half and, and starts to take charge. I was just about to say, that's exactly
2: how that when you could tell, you know, just how that was going to happen in terms of, oh, wow, okay. You know, the, the, the road team starts out strong, they sustain a little bit of an advantage, and then home team comes back, and, I mean, for the Bulls, it was their, um, their defense that ratcheted up. For the Pacers, they had enough defense for sure. They were definitely holding Jordan more or less in check, but offensively, they kind of explored a little bit. I mean, this was the first game that um the Pacers broke um the 100-point barrier, and not only did they do that, but they did enough to outlast the Bulls um, for this game. So, offensively, they came through. And I think a lot of that was also um for the second half. I want to say that the difference – for the Bulls, the first two games, second half defense. For the difference, the Pacers. Um, this game three was their bench. Um, Jalen Brown and Travis best out on their own. I mean, outscoring um, or not on their own, but including the Pacers bench,
1: um, outscored the Bulls forty three to twenty five. The Bulls bench. Yep, and you know Miller again, as I mentioned, he he hurts his ankle in the third quarter, uh, pretty early on in the third quarter. And, and leaves, but yeah, you get some some good production from Rick Smiths uh, when you know he got Luke Longley in foul trouble, and then uh, against Wennington, it seemed like the Pacers really loved that uh, that matchup for Smits, and, and he scored five straight in the third. He also had a nice block on a on a Scotty Pippen layup. You know, Smiths was was not a a great defender by any means in terms of his foot speed, but uh, just at, at his size, at times he was a deterrent at the rim. Um, but then, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the Pacers bench, after really not showing up at all uh, in uh, in the first two games in Chicago, Jalen Rose and, and Dale Davis contributed on a 6-0 run, which tied the game at 77 at the end of the third. So this this went to show you, though, that, you know, despite how good Reggie Miller was, that this was just a quality Indiana basketball team that didn't really rely on any single player. No, no you're right. Uh, the original uh, strength in numbers. Would that be so bold? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a good, complete
2: game for them. Um, and definitely one that helped their confidence. on uh, not only making it two one, but just being able to know that okay, we have different weapons that can kind of chip in. And of course, I love that at the end of this, not too far, but the um the Bulls um it was like they were they they were on equal pop So part of them, Ron Harper, after the game set you know, hey, listen, when he gets a 2-2, then y'all can talk about something. Fine. On the other hand, they were also talking about the fouls on their own end. Um, both Pippen and Jordan um, were complaining about, like, the way that they went to the hole and didn't get fouled. And then they asked Larry Bird, was, it, was he pleased with
1: the officiating? And he goes, yep, we won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great response. I, I loved watching Larry Bird in this series. You know, you talk about uh, Phil Jackson being sort of a stoic personality, but... I mean, I don't think he t- he holds a candle to Larry Bird on the sideline. That guy just showed zero, absolutely no emotions. That guy was just stone faced for all 48 minutes. I mean, he
2: really was. It was it was hilarious to see. And also, I have a little, a little, I guess, anecdote just to kind of bring out about his coaching style because I was reading um pieces. You know, they were coming out about this um uh, about this patience and everything, knowing that they were going to be featured in this game, right? And um, one of them was talking about how Larry was quiet, all business, you know, whatever, right? And um, Fred Hoiberg had commented in this piece saying that you know they were up pretty big one time against San Antonio, and they went on a little run. And Dick Carter and Rick Carlisle, um, um, Larry Bird's assistant coaches, Rick Carlisle for offense, Dick Carter for defense, they were both yelling to call time out. And Larry turned around and said, Listen, beep, I'll call the timeouts. When was the last time y'all played a beautiful game? And then, right after he says that, the Pacers go to 12-0 run and the other team has to call a timeout. And it was like, you had someone who was just stowing on the bench, knew, it almost was like Popovich-esque in the sense of like, knowing, I mean, this is from one of the greats of the game though, playing, knowing the tempo, the the way that the game works, had the mastery, not letting anything show on his face, and just a perfect... Glo- Hand and glove match for this veteran team to have someone that I mean Reggie Miller, Mark Jackson. has played against Larry when he was good, you know, even all, all through the end of his career. And now you have him at the, you know him coaching, and now he's a far cry from Larry Brown, who is kind of a micromanager. I'm getting the sense of that from just reading all these pieces and everything. But also just someone who was measured and composed throughout. You said it, like Phil Jackson is is, a, is an interesting one of himself, but. Just looking at Larry Larry Bird, I just wish he coached more than three seasons, man. He had such a, just such a, I don't know, just this
1: great game face, you know? Absolutely, yeah, and I I love that story about, uh, you know, Rick Carlisle, too, because Rick Carlisle, if people don't know, was actually a member of some of those uh, mid-'80s Celtics teams, including that 86 team. So, uh, you know, obviously at that time, uh, Carlisle was kind of a bench warmer, and Larry Bird was the MVP of the league. And uh, it appears things didn't change when they became coaches. <laughs> Which is funny, especially seeing how Rick Carlisle rose to his own stature as a coach in his own right. But back then, it's like, no, listen, I, I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> right. Uh, but but yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating watching him throughout the series. Uh, but but yeah, uh, going back to to game three, you know, the the Pacers doing a really good job of uh, of getting back into the ball game and even even taking a lead by the time that uh, Reggie Miller re-enters from the, uh, from the ankle injury. He comes back with about 10 minutes left in the fourth. And, and as I stated earlier, it was very obvious that he was hobbled. He was uh, limping up and down the floor. Uh, and, and you could tell as well, you know, I think one of the, the, the actions that, that Miller really was, was successful at throughout his career is, you know, obviously coming off those off-ball screens – Catching the ball on a curl and pushing off and 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 getting to the basket, but it seemed like with this with this ankle Achilles whatever this injury was, he was not able to push off and he had a couple of shots there in the early moments of him returning where it was like, oh uh, yeah, he's got no lift, uh, you know, no push off of that uh, off of that ankle.
2: Yeah, it was it was obvious. You said it was really impacting the way he came off, bounce off screens, the way he was just in general. It was. It it, it it showed. I mean, I didn't even know the whole. I, I guess the research on the popping just makes it even sound more devastating in retrospect. But just in general, the way he was moving was was hard. You know, it, it was more of a definitely more of a of a significant
1: game. Yeah, another guy that I was really impressed with in this game was Antonio Davis. Uh, he coming off the bench, just a really strong physical guy, and and the announcers doing these games just had so much positive uh, stuff to say about Antonio Davis I believe it was uh, Doug Collins just saying that he absolutely loved the guy um, but uh, Davis you know had a had a decently modern game you know he could step out to 17 feet and, and hit a jumper he even at a night's nice play where where he caught the ball about 17 feet pump fake drove and then kicked it to Mark Jackson for a jumper uh, but but yeah it was uh, with with Miller struggling for for a good portion of the time that he came back to start that fourth quarter, uh, it was uh, really, really great for the the Pacers to get contributions from the likes of of Rose and Smiths and Antonio Davis. You know, again, it it was uh, as you called it, strength in numbers. Yeah, it really
2: was, and you're right. I loved in general. Okay, Reggie Miller had another great quote about that, basically saying about the bench that, listen, um, you know, we we didn't win 58 games at the starting five. Like the bench won a number of games for them, and and that was big. And, and, that I don't really get a- Yeah.
1: You know their their three bigs how they complemented each other. You know again, I, I Smith's really uh, really a finesse center despite being 7'3", And then you've got the 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 great physicality of of the Davis Bros. So the I, I thought the three of them also were a really nice complement, and all three could play together in in any sort of combination. So that was valuable as well. So they didn't have to rely on Pope that you mentioned earlier, a rookie as the fourth big. He didn't really have to play much because again. Um, all three of those guys fit together well. Um, the, you know, going to the last five minutes of this game, this is where uh, Reggie Miller really stepped up and 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 took over despite being hobbled. Uh, he, he hits a three uh, with 4.10 left to put the Pacers up five, where he kind of flares to the corner. And that was something, you know, again, the Bulls, I think for the most part, did a pretty good job of of running with him around screens but occasionally you'd see the likes of Jordan or Harper trying to cheat and and get in the passing lane and and whenever you would do that around Reggie uh, he would make you pay and it was a really it's a really tough action especially when you've got that Miller you know with the cross screening action him going to the corner because if the big helps in the corner that frees up that easy little pass to the big man who would be right under the hoop
2: Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and 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 people who were easily in Smiths in um either of the Davises, whoever was there, were you know pretty good uh, finishers around the rim on their own right. But you're right, like going back on defensive end, yeah, that was one thing I definitely noted, just how good Harper and Jordan were at kind of sticking around the screens and playing up on them. And when you know um, Miller was really getting open, a lot of that was them kind of getting lazy a little bit, you know, fatigue setting a factor, maybe taking a passing lane. We're gambling and losing on a route, but also Miller just had this uncanny sense of how to maneuver around these screens and and down screens and just um just finagle room, you know, just kind of manufacture space to kind of get open. And yes, you have all pro defenders on you. It's kind of hard. But I also credit him for just knowing how to pop off, maybe feign a cut to the basket and then cut back around. Or it was constant motion and knowing how to manipulate these angles and these cuts and using screens for its advantage.
1: It was just a game within the game to see how both, you know, Miller and whichever the friend was on him kind of did this dance. Yeah. Speaking of Miller manufacturing space, we'll get to that at the end of Game Four. But, uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, you know. Um, MJ hit a free-throw line jumper to cut the uh, the Pacers' lead to three with about 350 left. But then, uh, you know, another situation of kind of lazy defense in transition coming back down the other way. Jordan isn't attached to Miller, and he kind of jogs back to about the free-throw line, and Miller catches a pass at the wing and just jacks up a three and hits another one to put the Pacers back up six. Um, and, and uh, you know, following possession, the, the Bulls miss. Miller, uh, you know, the fact that he had just hit back-to-back threes, he fakes the three, I believe it was Harper that fell for it, steps in, hits an 18-footer, Pacers up by eight with just 2:32 left. So so Miller, again, despite being hobbled, still a huge threat from the outside and, and scored eight straight to put the Pacers up by that same margin. Oh, yeah. Miller, again, it was almost like we talked about
2: Jordan taking over down the stretch of game two. Um, Miller did just as much in a smaller in a smaller spot for the Pacers in Game Three, and you're right. His outside shot was so good. That shot that you mentioned just now um, Jordan kind of losing on transition, him just
1: taking and jacking up. Those are the kind of plays that I mean Miller would have fit perfectly in this modern NBA. But yes. just, I just imagine those types of shots, just
2: up to 11, maybe shooting from deeper. I'm just like, wow, like that would be crazy because he was already doing some of that in this series. You know, I mean even ones that he missed, uh, and, and, uh, and them are going, wow miller deep three like it was kind of like what is he doing but he had that range and he just had that trigger and that throughout that outside shot when he did pump fake ron harper out his shoes was just because you have to contest any way you can otherwise you're giving up you know a pretty wide open three so the minute you do that the footwork was so impeccable for miller that while harper's still you know coming down you had already reset yourself and, and, and fired up an 18 footer and you know that shot wasn't a shot that I was um that shot was in vogue back then. Now he probably sidestepped into a, a more wide open three. Right. But back then, again, it was just simple. Okay, I want the three, but if if, if I don't have that, I'll just step in and take the jump shot. That I can still make. Um, except that you're right. Like I said, the numbers being what we talked about before in last in game two, where he had a shot that if he was just an inch further um off that pass from Mark Jackson, off that steal off of um Harper, it would have been a three and probably impacted the game. Um, if it was played, you know. Under the same mentality that it is now, so it was just interesting to see one just how good Miller would have adjusted, just in that small little scoring run that he had, but also in knowing that listen, like the,
1: the game was different, you know. Right, and and despite Miller having you know that uh, that famous sort of funky release where his elbow is kind of out, it's not exactly how you would teach a guy to, to shoot the basketball. It was a really, really quick release. You know, similar to maybe not quite as quick as a Clay Thompson. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty quick. Like, if you're not attached to him, he can get that shot off and, uh, and get it off before you can get there. So, really impressive uh, run from Miller. And, uh, you know, he hits, a, he, he hits another three off of an inbounds play where he gets a, a double screen and hits a, a three in the corner. Uh, which, which gave him 11 in the quarter and 26 overall to put the Pacers up by uh, a score of 101-93 with 135 left. Uh, but but then things got crazy. The Bulls nearly came back and stole it. Uh, Jordan got fouled and hit a couple of free throws to cut the lead to, to, uh, to five with 50 seconds left. Then Travis Best, who's in the game at this stage, he commits a turnover in the backcourt, and Pippen hits a three to make it 101-99. And uh, then, uh, you know, they fouled Jalen Rose with, uh, with 36 seconds left. Rose hits both free throws to put the Pacers back up four. But then, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll get into later in this series how much the Bulls ended up dominating on the boards. But uh, a, a big offensive rebound by Steve Kerr judging a, a Pippen three that was missed. He kicks it to Jordan, who hits it and makes it just a, a one-point game with 23.7 seconds left. But, yeah, it was it was a situation where the Pacers, again, seemingly had this under control, and then a couple of turnovers, a couple of made shots from the Bulls, a second-chance opportunity, and all of a sudden this was a one-point game with 24 seconds left. Oh, yeah, no, they definitely were making um – your
2: sweat down the stretch. You just described it in devastating fashion, just how, okay, we're clawing back. Oh, Pippen missed a three. Oh, guess what? Kerr got it back. And then bang. Like, you know, it was just clawing back in. And it was, again, just a testament to how close the series was. But also, like, you know, there wasn't a, at least but it wasn't going to be a blowout. You know, each game, you know, it has a certain rhythm to it that we've already established where the away team comes in, you know, the home team kind of pulls away down the stretch. But then you have to have the weight team come back and make one more push, just to kind of get the other two sweating, you know, before you know it ends up being a game. And for both these Pacers games, I think it was just a little bit closer than the Bulls were, because at the end the Bulls still kind of pulled away
1: with a five-six point cushion, nothing really higher than that. Whereas for um, the wins we're talking about here now for the Pacers, um, still so through game three, you know, it was within a bucket or two. Right, and uh, you know, fortunately the Pacers made the free throws down the stretch, Antonio Davis. There was there was a confusing situation, though, because after the after the three from MJ, it's a one-point game. The Pacers call timeout. They, uh, they have an inbound situation. Larry Bird has the opportunity to make some substitutions and bring on some better free throw shooters, but instead it's Antonio Davis is out on the floor, and he's the one that catches the pass and gets fouled, and Davis a 69% free throw shooter. Uh, so a, a little bit perplexing there of a decision from from Larry Bird in an obvious free throw shooting situation, but I mean uh, I think Davis bur- bailed Bird out there by uh, knocking them both down. I, I choose to think it was the legend having supreme confidence in his big man. <laughs> 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 no,
2: I'm kidding. I have the same thought. Like everyone knows at this point, okay, it's the foul game, so you want to have your best free throw shooter. You're not really sacrificing over rebounding or anything at that point. So it was definitely interesting, but. I mean, I guess it's a dumb idea until it works, and then it's
1: not dumb. <laughs> well, and uh, MJ came back to, with the Bulls down three. He gets fouled driving to the hoop, uh, but uh, misses a crucial free throw, so only cuts the Pacers' lead down to two, and then Miller gets it and is fouled, and, and Miller really, uh, you know, one of the, the, the most clutch players in NBA history and obviously one of the greatest free throw shooters ever. So combine those, and I think you can figure out what happened. He knocks down both. And uh, the Pacers end up end up winning 107-105 in that game three, and uh, yeah, this was uh, I mentioned earlier a post game interview talking about his ankle, and even even when he's doing the interview with Ahmad Rashad, he's got his arm around Ahmad like he's putting his weight onto the reporter. Um, oh, wow. So so uh, yeah, and, and again mentioning that he heard something pop. Uh, not a good sign, but obviously a, an incredible performance, especially in those last four-plus minutes to uh, to keep the Pacers in the series. Yeah, a heroic performance for him again. I mean, we're talking
2: about just, and again, you already mentioned a couple times that we talked about just how humbled he was. If you look back, even look at the highlights of that game um, after the fact, like maybe, maybe you know, past the middle point of it, it, it was significant. And so for him to come through, power through, give this team a much need to win in the series they really, really wanted. And then give the interview. and you like I'm going to check it out where he's basically like, I can't put weight on this leg right now. Uh, it, it, it just says a lot about Miller. Again, one of the, one of the clutch players this, in the history of this game, but just with these great performances, we don't you know about these great shots. But, you know, I, I think back to a much lesser extent, of course, to that Isaiah Thomas ankle injury in the NBA uh, finals against the Lakers, where, you know, you have a significant injury that's really kind of taking you out, but because of, the passion to win and the circumstance surrounding it, you come through with a signature performance um, in spite of, you know, literally
1: everything else evidence to the contrary that you shouldn't even be playing. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars, and uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various MBA uh, thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So, uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at Corbin NBA. That's C O R B A N N B A. So uh, he uh, he does a d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. Uh, Corbin also is the site expert. ...for the fan-sided website, Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns. So you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, So so please... I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for for listening, and have a great rest of your day.
0: Leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning.